Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. As we continue making our way through the the parables of Jesus, I want to do something maybe a little different today and just begin by reading our text for the day. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. If you want to have a Bible open in front of you to read along, or the words will be up on the screen here, but our passage for today is the back end of Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Jesus is speaking uh, and says these words. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, When I was a kid, first learning the stories of the Bible, one of the ways that was that I learned those stories that was really impactful for me was watching on VHS tape. Kids, your parents can explain to you what VHS tapes were later. But uh, there was this portrayal of the Gospel of Matthew. It was called the Visual Bible. uh, That was essentially just a movie acting out the entire Gospel of Matthew. And I don't know if you are familiar with that, had seen those at some point back in the day, but if, if you have seen those videos, you know that, that uh, the actor that played Jesus in that, in that video was an actor named Bruce Marciano. And you might also know that uh, one of the things that it seems like everyone says is distinctive about Bruce Marciano's portrayal of Jesus in that visual Bible of the Gospel of Matthew was that Jesus was just so happy all the time, it seemed like. I mean, in every scene, it seemed like Jesus had a smile on his face. He was glad to see people. I remember scenes where he and the disciples are walking down the road, and Jesus is talking with them and cutting up with them as they're, as they're traveling. And as a kid, learning these stories for the first time, it was helpful uh, to see the stories acted out because there's a little more depth and nuance to things like that, aside from just reading words on a page. And especially as a kid, learning these stories for the first time, that was helpful. But I think even more than that, it was helpful as someone learning what, who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him, it was helpful to see uh, this portrayal of Jesus as someone who was so 
uh, welcoming and happy and, and uh, open to people coming to him and glad to see them and things like that. It was helpful to get my arms around uh, who Jesus was as a human being and as the Son of God to see him portrayed in that way. And I think even more than that, uh, that portrayal of Jesus was helpful because if we're being honest and we're in church, so we probably should be, we, we kind of like having a portrayal of Jesus in that way, of just always happy and smiling and welcoming, willing to pat us on the head and tell us that we are great just as we are. Now hear me, of course, Jesus is kind and loving and generous. If you spend any time reading the four Gospels at all, you find pretty quickly Jesus is always willing to welcome people and is always willing to cross barriers that humanity puts up. And yet, just like how there are many sides to any one person, there are many sides to Jesus. If someone tried to explain everything there was to know about you from just one photo, it probably wouldn't matter how well they know you or, uh, or all the things that they could take out of that one photo. They probably wouldn't be able to summarize everything about who you are from that one picture because it's just one angle, just one perspective. And in the same way, as much as we could say about who Jesus is by looking at one picture of him that is always welcoming and happy and smiling, that would tell us a lot and it's helpful to have that, but it does not tell us everything. We need the complete Jesus if we're going to experience the complete life with God that he desires for us. And when we look at the complete Jesus, when we take Jesus fully as he is, what we find pretty quickly is that he says and does things that we probably would not do if it was purely up to us. Or maybe he at least just does things, talks about things a little more often than we would talk about them. If you look at a list of the things Jesus spends the most time talking about, it kind of depends on who's doing the counting when you're looking at any one of those lists, but pretty much across the board, if you look at a list of what are the things Jesus talks about the most, and at or near the top of that list almost every time is the topics of money and hell. We can be honest, money and hell are two things that we don't think of when we picture Jesus as happy and smiling, sitting with his disciples around a campfire. I mean, they're awkward topics. We probably don't want to talk about them any more than we have to. And yet, in this parable we've just read this morning, Jesus attacks both of them at the same time. And that might make us uncomfortable, but despite how uncomfortable that might make us, Jesus does so with a purpose. He's, he didn't just wake up on this morning and was in a bad mood and he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give him my thoughts on money and hell today. He, he weaves both of these topics together because they're important, but even more than that, they are a natural implication of the things that Jesus has been speaking about over the past few weeks, if you remember. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three stories to this crowd that was a mix of religious people and people who looked down on religious people. And Jesus tells these three stories about things that were lost, that were found to make the point that God seeks after what is lost. And the third of those stories was about this, this son who took his father's inheritance and ran away for, into a foreign land and he lost all that money and he came back home and the father welcomed him back in. 
And as the father does that, the, the older brother of this rebellious son is offended by this and refuses to enjoy the celebration being thrown for his brother who has returned home. And Jesus tells this story to make the point to this crowd that is a mix of religious and irreligious people that the religious people in this crowd are the older brother. They think that they deserve something from God. They've kept all the rules. They've been in church every week. They deserve the Father's approval, and yet the Father's giving his approval to rebellious sons that run away, and they're offended by this. And because these religious people are like this older brother, Jesus tells this story to show that they are in danger of missing out on the party that is being thrown for any and all children of God who decide to come home. So Jesus goes straight from that into the story we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 16, where he calls us to view everything we have through the lens of his kingdom, even when that looks strange uh, from the view of others. And after telling that story, Jesus explains why that is the perspective we should have by saying that no one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other. Either you will be devoted to your stuff and therefore willing to hold on to your stuff instead of taking hold of God, or you will hold on to God and view everything else through that lens. And, and as Jesus says that, Luke tells us that there are religious people, Pharisees, who are hearing him say this, and they are offended. Luke tells us that the same people that were grumbling in Luke 15 because Jesus loves sinners are now grumbling because Jesus is telling them that they need to let go of their stuff because they sure do like their stuff. And Jesus spells all this out to show how, what it means to live in his kingdom and to make it clear that as things stand, these Pharisees, these religious people, are in danger of missing out on what he has come to bring. And now he gets to the end result of all of that from chapters 15 and 16 by showing us the end result of that sort of continual rejection of him and his kingdom in this story. The Pharisees were in danger of being the older brother, grumpy that God would love sinners and now Jesus says they are in danger of being this rich man having missed out on the life Jesus called them to because they refused to let go of their things so we've read the text we've recapped what's gotten us to this point but maybe before we start walking through this story a little more closely we need to think about what kind of story we're looking at we said last week that the parable at the beginning of Luke 16 is maybe the most confusing parable Jesus ever tells, and I think that's true, but I also think it's probably true that this parable has a good case to make for being second on that list. You might have noticed, even as we were reading the text, that, that there's one character in this parable that gets a name, Lazarus. And you might know, if you've read the parables at all, that that doesn't happen. This is the only place in any of Jesus' parables where he gives a name to someone in one of his stories. And so based on that fact, you've maybe heard it suggested that maybe this isn't a parable at all. Maybe Jesus uh, knew about this story. He's telling us a real story that happened. And, and I guess if you think about it in that way, it makes this a little more uh, urgent and significant. But it does seem the case pretty clearly that Jesus is telling us a parable. And the name that he gives in this story is one part within that broader story. The name Lazarus that he gives in this story comes from a name that means God helps. And as we read, that's a pretty appropriate name because it sure seems like God is the only help that Lazarus has. 
And if you notice, he names Lazarus, but he doesn't name this rich man in this story. And the purpose for that seems to be that Jesus is drawing a contrast between the two, both in how they lived on earth and how they are viewed by God. Because these two men live very close to one another, but their lives could not be more different. We have this rich man who has the finest clothes. In the ancient world, purple dye was extremely expensive. So someone whose clothes they wear every day are purple indicates that they have an extreme amount of wealth. would look at the life of this rich man and think he has to be blessed by God. I mean, how else do you accumulate this much wealth and prestige if God is not blessing anything and everything that you do? And on the other hand, just outside this rich man's bubble of luxury, we have Lazarus. Instead of feasting every day, Lazarus lays at the gate of this rich man just hoping that there might be some scraps left over from his feast that would be able to get him through the next day. Instead of wearing the finest clothes, we're told Lazarus is covered in sores. Instead of sitting down to a banquet table that's surely filled with the movers and shakers of society every day, the only company that Lazarus keeps is a pack of wild dogs. Dogs are not pets in Jesus' day. No one's excited to see dogs in Jesus' day. They're unclean. They're scavengers. They're just looking for anything and everything that can feed them. And the fact that the dogs are licking Lazarus' swords just adds insult to injury. Uh, It would just make his painful condition even more painful. It makes him ceremonially unclean in the eyes of God. Anyone looking at this situation would have to assume that someone living in this sort of squalor has to be under the curse of God. I mean, if someone is laying outside a rich man's gate, just getting by by eating out of the garbage dump, and their only company is wild dogs, I mean, how does someone get in that situation unless God has cursed them for something that they have done? But then both men die. And Jesus tells us first about the death of Lazarus, you might notice, which is maybe a hint that this story is about to take a twist. But first, Jesus simply says that Lazarus died. And that might be a a minor detail, but it seems significant because whoever it was that died in Jesus' day, it was almost always the case that they received a burial. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead because they have hatched a scheme as a couple to uh, lie to the church and to God, and for that reason they are struck dead. And yet, Luke makes the point to tell us in Acts chapter 5 that both Ananias and Sapphira receive a burial. Even though they're struck dead because of blatant sin against God and his people, they still receive the honor of a burial. And Jesus tells us here that Lazarus just dies. I mean, apparently no one sees to it to bury him. No one thinks it's worth honoring him, remembering that he is no longer on this earth or anything like that. And yet, although he receives no honor, no dignity from the rest of humanity at his death, Jesus tells us he is carried to Abraham's side by angels. 
on earth, Lazarus laid at the gate of the rich man day after day, just hoping that something would get thrown out that would be able to sustain him to get him to the next day. Much He could not even dream of the idea of those gates being opened and him being welcomed in. And yet in heaven, he's escorted by angels to the seat of honor. In the eyes of the world, Lazarus was worthless on his own. No one was even paying enough attention to Lazarus to notice that when he died, someone should probably bury him. And yet in the eyes of God, he's not forgotten and welcomed in. He has a name. God comes to his side, and that is worth more than anything the world could offer. And on the other hand, Jesus tells us the rich man is buried. And I have to assume it's probably a a stately funeral. Maybe it's something similar to all the honor that we've seen given to Queen Elizabeth over the past few weeks at her passing. I mean, there's surely ornate decorations, a great casket, eulogies given, celebrating a life that was so well lived. I mean, how could you not? And yet, if you notice, we don't get much detail from Jesus. He simply says he died And was buried. Instead of a heavenly procession leading this rich man into the presence of God, we are told he is sent to Hades, the realm of the dead, where we are told he is in torment. Jesus doesn't say anything about how the rich man or Lazarus, either one, lived while they were on the earth, but they have both apparently reached the natural end of their earthly lives. Lazarus lived a life of destitution, and in death is comforted by God. The rich man lived a life of luxury and experiences agony in death. And it's important we read this story and don't make too much of what is not there. Because we could read this and run in all sorts of directions trying to construct theories about what this parable has to say about the afterlife and how you reach whichever end that might uh, be given to us. But that does not seem to be Jesus' interest. Jesus is trying to make a point about these two characters. And those of us that might identify with them. Because as the rich man is in agony, he sees Lazarus enjoying the seat of honor next to Abraham. And I know I just said we shouldn't press things too far, but it is worth pausing on what Jesus highlights here. Because what he shows us that happens is maybe a little different from what we would typically assume. There are streams of thought in our world you can find expressed in any number of ways that typically assume in some way or another that at the end of the day, everything's just going to shake out. Either God's just going to say, it's okay, let everyone off the hook, no matter what they did on this earth, or that once you get to the end, if someone is, is faced with the judgment of God, they will recognize they've made a mistake and they'll repent accordingly and then they'll be let off the hook. And as comforting as that might sound, I feel obligated to say that based on this passage and others, it does not line up with Scripture. Because as you see here in this parable, we also see in other places in Scripture that that in eternity you simply become more of what you already were in this life. This rich man is in agony in the realm of the dead, and he is still under the assumption that things are as they were on earth, that Lazarus is below him and that he can have whatever he wants. Seems to think there must have been a mistake. He must need to speak to a manager. He just needs to present his case to the right person. If you notice, he starts his address by saying, Father Abraham. He he subtly 
presents his credentials. I mean, he's got the right background, the right pedigree. He was born into the right family. So for that reason, Father Abraham, if you would be so kind, send Lazarus to do my bidding for me. And that reference to Father Abraham might call our mind back to Luke chapter 3. If you've been in Sunday school with us in this room where we've been making our way through the gospel of Luke, you might remember that last week when we were looking at the story of John the Baptist, one of the things John the Baptist says in his preaching is to not assume that you are good with God just because you come from the right family. He says to people who think, well, Abraham's my father. He says, yeah, God could make rocks into children of Abraham if he wanted to. So whatever's going on here, you must not assume that just because Abraham is in your family line, that you are good with God. Each person is called to repent and live according to who God is. And this man has not, this rich man here in Luke 16 has not done that. Even as he is experiencing the full torment of separation from God that is the natural end of the life he lived apart from God on earth, he still thinks he's entitled, at least deserves something similar to what Lazarus is receiving. And if you notice, Abraham disagrees. He says both the rich man and Lazarus are experiencing the end result of how they lived on earth. God calls us to life with him. And even if a later offer were coming, there seems to be no indication here that the rich man would accept it. Because a life that consistently rejects God will continue to reject God the longer it continues. And God deals with us according to how we respond to him. And for those who decide to go their own way, they experience the full ramifications of that choice. And that is what this rich man is experiencing now. And yet he's not done with the conversation. Because it may be too late for him, but maybe something could be done for his five brothers that are still living. It's said that the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would do if he got to the end of his life and died and then suddenly realized that he had been wrong and that there was, in fact, a God. And supposedly his response to that question was that he would tell God that he was not given enough evidence. And the rich man here seems to be making a similar accusation. I mean, he's not coming right out and saying it, but by asking for his brothers to be given more information than he received, he's at least suggesting that he wasn't given a fair shake, that if I had just been told more, if I had seen someone raised from the dead, I would have lived differently. So maybe my brothers deserve a better chance if you would send Lazarus back from the dead to warn them about what's waiting for them if they keep living the way that I lived. And if we're being honest, on one level, we could maybe sympathize with this. Maybe it seems a little unreasonable to just expect people to read the Bible and live accordingly. Maybe God should give more evidence, and that might be how we feel. But apparently Jesus disagrees. And despite what we might think is best, Jesus knows better. The rich man is told there's enough evidence in Moses and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. 
And if someone reads the Old Testament, they discover pretty quickly that God cares for the broken and the downtrodden and that anyone who desires to be a part of his people should have the same heart as they live a life based around a love for God and a love for others. And so if the brothers of this rich man know what the Old Testament says about who God is and how he calls his people to live, and they have rejected that, not even someone raising from the dead is going to change their mind. And that's the story. One commentator says this parable ends like a piano player just hitting all of the low notes on the piano at once, which I thought about doing, but I didn't want to get in trouble with the worship team. That it just sounds ominous, and there are all these notes, and some of them fit together, and some of them don't, and you could go in lots of different directions. But with the rest of the time this morning, I, I want to reflect on at least some of the things this text is saying about how God calls us to live in his kingdom. First off, this parable is not saying that all wealth is automatically bad. In Luke 19, Jesus will meet this tax collector, Zacchaeus. You might know the story. And Zacchaeus, once he encounters who Jesus is, he immediately repents and starts giving away a bunch of his wealth to people that he has, he has not treated fairly. And Jesus commends him for that. In Luke chapter 8, we're told in this little aside comment that Jesus' ministry is supported by a number of women who appear to be pretty, pretty well off as they support Jesus and his disciples traveling around and preaching. And so it can't just be that all wealth is automatically bad. But instead, it seems to be that each of us have a responsibility to use what we have for the kingdom. And oftentimes it is the case that the more you have, the harder it is to use what we have for kingdom ends. And that is the case of the rich man. It's not that he was an evil guy, it's just that he viewed his stuff as his own. And as he did that, he missed out on the life God called him to live. And that fact should probably cause us to sit up and take notice. Because if it was just the case that all wealth is bad, then each, of, each one of us could probably just look around and find someone who has more wealth than we have and assume that this passage is for them and not for us, and therefore we're off the hook. But if it's the case that anyone could fall into the trap that this rich man falls into, that must mean that we at least need to wonder if we are in danger of falling into the same trap, and if so, repent accordingly. Another commentator says that maybe, the, maybe Lazarus gets a name in this story and the rich man doesn't because the rich man could be any one of us. Compared to the world as a whole, most, if not all of us, have lives that are pretty comfortable. We might not have the finest clothes living in a gated mansion, but we're better off than most. And like the rich man, I am pretty confident that no one listening to my voice right now is an automatically evil person. But I also know that we live in a world that tells us that the highest good we could achieve is our own happiness and comfort. And when we buy into that message, it probably won't turn us into people who commit atrocities, but it could pretty well turn us into people who are just comfortable. Unwilling to see the world as God sees it. And the end result of that life is separation from God. The commentator Leon Morris says that this rich man had all he asked for in life and lived a life of enjoyable ease. He's not said to have committed any grave sin, but he lived only for himself. In that lay his condemnation. 
And if I may build off of that quote, in that could very easily lie our own condemnation. How easy it might be for us to get to the end of life and realize we had just lived for ourselves when God desired so much more for us. So I think if we're going to respond to this text, we at least first have to see Lazarus. My guess is none of you have someone like Lazarus laying in your driveway day in and day out, but I also know there are needs around us that we are able to meet as the hands and feet of Jesus, and too often we, and I'm including myself when I say this, are too busy, too preoccupied, too comfortable to see it. And hear me, I know getting involved in the life of someone who is hurting can be complicated, and I also know full well that sometimes just out straight away helping someone is not the best thing for them in the long run. Maybe it's true that the person on the street corner should get a job. Maybe it's true that they're not as hard as things aren't as bad in life as they make it sound. Maybe it's true that they're just going to spend any money you give them on booze, but that just because the issue is more complicated than handing someone some money and moving on does not mean there is nothing to be done. And as we follow Jesus, he calls us to love others as he has loved us. And when we look at the love Jesus has shown us, we see nothing got in the way of his love. Jesus left heaven to come and save us. And in response to what he has done, he calls us to not let anything get in the way of showing love to others. So as we live as God's people, he calls us to look for people like Lazarus and love them as God has loved us. Because if we refuse, we are missing out on the life God desires for us now and in eternity. And that might sound like an ominous note to end on as if God's just trying to scare us this morning. But the way this parable ends shows us Jesus is making the same point here he was making in the parable we looked at last week. And that point is to live every part of life through the lens of his kingdom. Attachment to our money, our stuff, anything else at the expense of love for God and love for others will end in our destruction. Our stuff, whatever it might be, our idols, they always promise to save us. They always promise peace and prosperity. But I'm here to tell you that it's a lie. So don't use your stuff as a means to try to save yourself, but as an expression of the love that God has poured out for us. The message of comfort our world sells us calls us to look inward, to to protect your stuff, uh, make sure that you and those closest to you are taken care of and use it all on yourself, do whatever you have to do. And what we find when we do that is we always put up walls, we put up gates, we find ourselves insulated and isolated from the world around us. And the end result of that is to be alone like this rich man at the end of this story. And yet the gospel calls us to look outward to look to the needs of others, to look to a world that is hurting, to go out with the message that brings healing, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus with our words and deeds. And as we follow that life, we find the end result is following Jesus through death and into resurrection, joining Lazarus and who else, whoever else we might bring with us to the table of our God. This parable ends by telling us that the brothers of this rich man, and by extension all of us, 
have received the message we are to respond to. The question that remains in this story and for us is what we will do with what we have been told. So whoever you are, wherever you are at this morning, take the next step in a walk with God. And as you do, you will probably find him leading you towards people who are hurting. And you will probably find him calling you to love them as God has loved you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you spared no expense in coming to show your love to us in your son. You've been extravagant in giving us more than we could have asked for, more than we ever could have realized we wanted or needed by sending your son to die on the cross for us when we were sinners who had rebelled against you and deserved nothing apart from death. So because that is the case, Father, help us respond as your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear a heart that is after yours for the world around us. May we love and care for those around us day in and day out, whatever that might look like, as a response to the love you've shown us. Give us wisdom as we do that, so that as individuals and as a church family, we would be known as people who love those who are hurting because of the love you have for us and for them. In your son's name that we pray. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.